You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. My name's Christina Delange and I would like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands upon which I am recording, the Yuggera people. I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging and also extend that acknowledgement to the traditional owners of the land upon which you, our listeners, are tuning into this podcast from today. Now, back with me on today's podcast episode, I have Dr. Tim Jones. Tim, thanks very much for coming back today. Hi, Christine. It's a pleasure. So, for those of you out there who have heard our last episode, we were chatting about behavioural challenges in the paediatric population and how to assess this in the primary care setting. Tim is today going to chat with me again about behavioural challenges, but this time sort of flipping over to the other side and talking more around the management aspect of that. So, Tim, I, I'm, I'm a really big person for having a bit of an approach to these problems or to problems generally as they present to us in general practice. So, I'm going to start off by again asking you, what's your approach when it comes to management of, the, of behavioural challenges? Yeah, I think that the most powerful point I can make is that trying to do less things well rather than more things and spreading yourself too thin is a good approach to have as a GP when you're seeing these families. And like I alluded to in the last episode, if you think you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by the number of issues and challenges that are coming up in a consultation with a family, do recognise that the family is at least that overwhelmed by it all themselves. And so picking one issue that might be the most pertinent to the well-being of that child and that family may be the most important thing you can do and the best thing that will start to make a positive difference for them day to day. So I think we can come sometimes see all the things that might be going wrong for a family. What is a really nice thought to have in your mind as you're trying to structure what your goals and aims of a consultation are is to see the well-being of that family along a continuum towards healthiness or well-being and try and think about what's one step that might move them in a positive direction along that continuum rather than trying to come up with a grand unified theory of everything. So, Tim, I think sometimes a bit of a knee-jerk reaction for us as GPs is when some of these behavioural concerns present, we tend to want to start just by referring them straight away off to a paediatrician. So, we kind of put this into the domain of the paediatricians. You mentioned in your last episode that this is a really challenging situation right now with wait lists to get into a paediatrician quite long around the country and in some areas just an inability to get seen altogether. So, you know, it really brings the importance of the GP into the spotlight. How do you think the GP can be best involved in the management of these cases? Well, certainly you may end an interaction with a family recognising the need for a paediatrician to get involved. And certainly with wait times, there may be a significant time before that definitive kind of opinion can happen. I think it's really good for us not to wash our hands of the matter, but also to recognise that one of the great joys of general practice is that longitudinal care. And sometimes, even if we're not feeling particularly comfortable with what's going on, that regular, friendly, professional, safe support that we provide to families and the individuals within them can make all the difference in the world, even if it's just allowing a safe space for some of the more difficult challenges to come up in a way that's moderated and regulated in a way that helps it actually be a bit more constructive. The other kind of 
wonderful recognition to have as a GP, I think, is that much as the parents may often lead these consultations, the child is normally the patient. And it's really nice to see one of our roles in general practices being a support for the voice of the child, for being a bit of a microphone for letting their fears, concerns, or kind of ideas about what's going on to be voiced. And also, in a way, to be an advocate for that child and to really highlight some of the foundational things that might provide better support for them, which so often, unfortunately, in these tough times for families, does fall on the family directly because there's no substitute for what's going on in the home environment as to the well-being of that child. The last point I should probably make too is that we can be really good coordinators and um, so often we can work uh, directly with some allied health supports. We can, as I mentioned in the last episode, start to liaise and build some bridges with the learning environments that our children are in as well too. And we can try and keep the team on the same page. And I think it's a recognition that even if the issues are perhaps a little complex or a little tricky for us to feel confident in managing, we do need to recognise that some of our core GP skills about reflective listening, setting smart goals, and building a bit of a team and collaborating, but keeping the team focused on particular goals at a time and in a way that's realistic, they all translate to this space really well and will give you good outcomes for the family that you see. You mentioned about supporting families. You know, are there specific mm-hmm. things or interventions that you find helpful with parents or other caregivers involved with the child? Yeah. Families can really struggle to feel confident in their own parenting. I think every parent has a degree of imposter syndrome about whether they're doing this right. And no one family is the same, particularly when you start working across a culturally and linguistically diverse population. And so a lot of what I can be focusing on too is just identifying how families may have been parented themselves when they were children, which elements of that they really attach to strongly and wish to continue as being high value, which elements they perhaps never felt that comfortable with themselves but don't know any alternatives to. And also that reflection on the parenting approaches in play, how are they translating in terms of what impact is it having on the child? Does it seem to be building in a positive direction or does it seem like something's missing? And um, being that interplay between the communication of a child and their family, that's one of the really important spaces I find myself in when I'm doing some management for families in terms of just trying to collaborate on, well, who's responsible for what with these issues as they arise and how do we create an environment that feels a little bit more safe and a little bit less fractious for everyone involved. Do you ever recommend, I guess, parenting courses or is that something that you sort of go through and will counsel parents on yourself or is it not not something you generally recommend? I think if you're interested in this space as a GP, It's lovely to have a look at some of the the free and accessible parenting courses that are out there and the two main ones that are easy to access here in Australia. There's the Circle of Security program, which is all about kind of safe family environments, safe communication. That's been running through our child and family centres for a very long time, but it's easy for us to piggyback on to some training when that's happening. And the other one is the Triple P, so the, the Positive Parenting Program. Um, which the Australian government's been funding access to for all Australians for 
a bit of time now. Um, that's another one to just set up a login for and have a look at. And these are easy to access programs that we can recommend to families as well. If they really want that sort of approach and they just need extra information about how to make it work. And in our time poor, attention poor modern society, I am a big fan of the podcasts. And it's really nice to see some of the uh, the parenting podcasts start to really climb to the top of the various podcast charts as well. Because it is that lovely way where you can say to families, look, 15 minutes here, 20 minutes here, pick a topic that you really seem to be struggling with. There might well be some really good information out there. I'm a particular fan of Maggie Dent's parenting podcast, and I'm trying to get into Hamish Blake's How Are the Dads Dad just as a dad myself, because I really think that the dads in some ways are the, the least confident of all of us out there. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a challenging space because on the one hand, we don't want to put that feeling of blame, I guess, and guilt, you know, onto a parent yes. by sort of saying, oh, this is your fault or that this is, you know, your issue that your child's behaving in a certain way. And so if you do this parenting course, it's going to make everything better. But we yes. still want to be able to support families to grow, I guess, their skills and you talked earlier about thinking about how the parent themselves was parented, which can be really important. I think for many parents, they tend to revert back to what they know. And even those things that you've always said, I'm not going to do that as a parent or I'm not going to be yes. like that, but that's what's been modelled. That's often what you revert back to. And I guess that can be different between two parents as well, can't it? Between the mum and the dad yeah. or the dad and the dad, the mum and the mum or whoever the care, that if there are multiple caregivers involved, yes. you know, so coming back to maybe some of the ideas around talking to everybody involved and how does everybody yeah. feel and how do we come up with, I guess, a consistent approach? Definitely, i found that even just highlighting to the parents the child's perspective on what's been happening to an issue that the parents have been seeing from their perspective is an incredibly powerful tool because sometimes the parents just hear the child's reflection about, you know, uh, you know, during a meltdown, I didn't know what was going on. I was upset. I was hitting and hurting because I didn't know what to do. But then afterwards, when I was in my room all alone, I felt really sad, really lonely. Sometimes they just hear that. And the parents know without you having to say anything that a change of approach is going to be needed. And I've, I find like so many areas of general practice, the best kind of habit change or behavioural change happens when it's patient-led and clinician-supported. And so my absolute best days working in this space as a GP have been when all I've done is use a few reflective listening skills and a lot of curiosity about the different perspectives and the different feelings involved to just let it come out across a few consultations as to what's actually happening rather than what people are feeling. And then the parents have often kind of come back with the whole, maybe we should try this. And then you just find yourself in this wonderfully relaxed space of going, oh, that sounds like it's really worth it. How can we support you in that? And it becomes that very motivational interviewing approach that we know is going to lead to the greatest long-term change rather than trying to bolt a very short-term fix like a reward chart or something like that onto behaviour. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, you t talk about reward charts that aren't necessarily going to be that successful in the long term. I, I mean, I think with a lot of behaviours, you can get some short-term success with this, but with, you know, reward charts, let's say, 
that doesn't really yes. once once the initial novelty of the reward has worn off, unless you're willing to continue to increase the rewards, it tends to not be that helpful in the longer term. But we have sort of sort of focused on the the support for the family, the parents. Is there mm-hmm. any specific, I guess, interventions? when it comes to the child do you ever get the child alone and or is there an age at which that kind of becomes more appropriate and i know we're talking really generally because we haven't actually Mm. drilled down on a particular behavior we're still just keeping this really um general so that might be hard to sort of answer but is there ever a time when you do sort of really get the child alone or focus on in on the child or is it more focused on the parents and the families if I ever had a safety concern about a family, I'd try and get the child uh, on their own early or kind of in a safe space with a chaperone just to really kind of make sure I could ask some very clear questions and get some opinions. Obviously, the younger a child is, the more I have to put what they tell me into a context that says children do sometimes embellish stories a little bit, but I also want to give the child that authentic attention to go, if, if there's a safety concern, I've got to be very involved in that. I actually find, and maybe this is flipping it around a little bit, the people I most want to give some alone time to are the parents because often the child is the resilient one. Even if it doesn't seem that way, they've been coping with a lot of adversity and it's often the parents whose resilience has started to falter. And I find myself more often booking time for the parents to come without the child just to really focus on how they're feeling, what supports they do or do not have some of their other stresses, like some of the societal or economic stresses they're facing, because I do feel like so often if the parents were doing a really excellent job of supporting the well-being of a child and that's now faltered, sometimes that's the child. Sometimes it's just the parents cracking and, and they already know everything they need to do and we need to bolster their own resilience to help them. I think routinely once I've got a child of, say, more than 11, 12 years of age, approaching those sort of preteen years, I do really try and always make time for those patients to come back without their parents somehow within a consultation, just to really tease out whatever issues might wish to remain confidential or safe. So let's actually, I guess, narrow things down now a little bit. And let's, I guess, pick a specific concern, maybe around like the tantrums or concerns around meltdowns. Often I see this, you know, when kids or when children have recently started school or maybe kindergarten sometimes it's flowing over it to the school space but sometimes the parents are at their wits end because they talk to the teachers the teachers are saying oh they're perfect angels or they're doing relatively well and then they get home and the and the families are trying to manage the exact exact opposite with lots of challenging behaviors and tantrums and what have you so in that situation what would be some specific strategies you could offer to that family so there's foundational supports and then there's communication supports and so the foundational supports are making sure that things that might erode a child's emotional resilience are being addressed and that's that HALT acronym the kind of hungry angry late tired if any of those are contributing we should work on those first because asking a child to be emotionally resilient when they've got any of those going on or when they've been holding on to their wee for three hours because they're terrified of the school toilets, we've got to make sure that that stuff's treated first. It's the simple stuff, but it matters. And then often, if that's in place, you are focusing on the communication between the parent and the child. The most common, I guess, syndrome I see in, in meltdowns with, you know, toddler and preschool-aged kids 
is that the parent tries very patiently to reason with the child or talk to the child while the child is very obviously escalating behaviour. And then at some point, the parent's patience erodes and then they snap and a consequence comes out such as, you know, you're having your TV privileges revoked or you're going to your room. And then that doesn't really work either, but eventually the child's tantrum peters out and then they often, you know, hug and make up afterwards and normal service resumes. I just try and point out to parents that if you're in the middle of a hurricane, you can't really reason with it. And so often for parents, you're burning all this emotional energy that you don't really have to begin with. And it should be more focused on the environment of a child. And so creating a safe space where a child can have a tantrum, where the parent is present just to ensure that safety, but they're not necessarily trying to fix it or trying to mitigate it. I do really love a technique called sports casting for parents sometimes, which is just thinking about what would a sports commentator say if they were watching this as a game? You know, oh, you're upset because I took that toy off you or your sibling belted you or whatever it's going to be. But you're not actually trying to set a direction. You're just highlighting to a child that you are recognising their perspective and their emotions. And then inevitably, the meltdown will pass and it'll probably pass faster because the child's feelings have been heard. And then rather than kind of the, the guilt or shame consequence that might involve going to a room or a privilege being revoked, then you can just hug and make up without the shame bit. And so I often say to parents that if we're trying to help a child through meltdowns as a developmental phase, we've got to not focus on the meltdown itself because you can't get rid of them. We've got to focus on what actually helps the child feel heard, safe, but doesn't necessarily give in or allow the child to feel 100% in control of their entire universe because that sort of bargaining is often not something they're either developmentally ready for or are going to emotionally benefit from engaging in either. Yeah, and I guess helping families to see that the parent's response to a challenging situation is what is being modelled to the child. So, you know, that kind of elevation of one's getting angry, the other person's getting angry and, and it keeps escalating. The child yes. is is always learning and they're learning that that's how they deal with those situations. So sometimes yes. helping I guess, or supporting the parent to sort of see that and, and to think about other ways yes. they can manage and that these emotions are okay. That's, I think, a big part, yeah. isn't it? You know, that these emotions are okay. It's keeping everyone safe during those emotions and it's supporting them through the emotions, not necessarily yes. judging them to say that they can't have these emotions, so to speak. And keeping it in context too, because so often I find the parents have, the fear is actually not that the emotion is the challenge. The fear is that this is the whole future ahead of them that they've signed on to and that their child's development is going to remain forever stuck in this loop. And how are they going to juggle the new baby with the toddler who's melting down over everything and everyone? And so often it's just putting it in that very human context of, look, I'm a GP. I've got a young family myself. I remember this phase. It was tough that it does end and we just need to recognise that some of that worst case scenario thinking, that doesn't happen unless kind of there's a fundamental issue that we're either missing or we're not uh, supporting in a way that's going to mitigate it. Tim, you did mention about involving a team around yes. children where it's needed. Is, are there any specific you know, allied health referrals that you would make or in indications for these? We're a bit strapped locally, as I mentioned. 
But I do really feel that the most direct support for the family is the most important. And so that's my first tier. If families have the ability for someone to mind a child, just so they can step off the treadmill for a little while and recover their energy. So when they go back on, they have their wits about them and they know what they're doing and they can stick to a plan. That's often foundational in terms of improving access and outcomes to what's going to happen for that child and that family. And my next rung of support often involves the learning environment and seeing if there's a preferred caregiver or teacher's assistant within the school environment who might be well-placed to support the emotional needs of that child. Child psychologists were historically my go-to because many of our best ones here could do such good work with families and with children. Access has become a real challenge for me. And so I have tended to try and get that mental health care plan done within the first three to four consultations if I think this is a family that is really going to need that level of support because then I might be doing some parallel work just to support them while they wait for that person who might become a really valuable member of the team. And the younger a child or the more some of the uh, challenges might relate to things like sensory experiences or overwhelm, the more I might like to involve someone like an OT or a play therapist. And if a child has a particularly significant developmental concern, the advent of the um, early childhood, early intervention scheme through NDIS has made it a lot easier to get kind of adequate support in place for some of those families, provided you think about it early and support them through the process because it is a bit of a process. Yeah, and important though to be aware of what services are available through that and to advocate for families to be able to access where appropriate. Finally, Tim, do you have any uh, resources, I guess, that you would recommend GPs to have a look at when it comes to these sorts of presentations? I think, as I mentioned earlier, if you want to look at some of the positive parenting programs that are out there and free to access, it's a wonderful investment in your time. I'm sure you can match it up to learning outcomes in terms of your CPD as well. I really do want to put a plug in for the Emerging Minds content as well too. So Emerging Minds have built a whole bunch of modules and supports for various levels of health practitioner, but also for families and support people on all sorts of challenges, including kind of things very relevant to some of the Australian challenges we've had, such as supporting young children and their families through natural disasters and displacement, which is one of those things we've had to bite off through the last few years as well too. Well, Tim, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. And we will catch up again soon for our listeners. Tune in again because we are going to be having one final episode with Tim on nocturnal enuresis. Thanks for listening to the Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of The Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidance 
guidelines prior to any clinical decisions.